Kim. How are you? I'm doing really great. How are you? I'm good. We're in the middle of shooting a cookbook, and the recipe for this morning was uh, Prosecco poached pears. So I had a little extra Prosecco left over, so I had a little mimosa Mm. before we started. You know, I was thinking that I could really use a mimosa this morning because we're going to be talking about New Year's traditions. And to me, a mimosa just seems like a really big part of that. I agree. Well, can I tempt you with some short but really interesting facts about how New Year's Eve is celebrated around the world? I would love to hear that. Fabulous, because I have that for you. (laughs) (laughs) So So one big thing I've noticed when doing research about these traditions and talking to folks is that there are a lot of cultures in which pork factors as a major part of a New Year's Eve or New Year's Day meal. So fun fact number one, pork for progress. The reason why pork seems to be so popular for this reason is because pigs root by pushing their snouts forward rather than side to side or pecking backwards like chickens do. And so this tradition that hails largely from Germany and in Eastern Europe, although I've seen it elsewhere, pork is seen as a lucky animal because it roots forward and therefore eating pork imbibes you with their luck as well. Now, pork's often served with things like cabbage and sauerkraut, the strands of cabbage symbolizing a long life. Cabbage being green can also symbolize money. And then in Italy, pork is often served with lentils because the round legumes look like coins. Interesting. I didn't know that about pork. I always wondered what that was about pork and New Year's, but that makes sense. You know, me too, because pork also has a taboo factor in in the culinary world. And so because it eats filth and, you know, the perception is that well, it's a mud and it's an unclean animal. And so I do find this juxtaposition of it's a lucky animal, but it's also an unclean animal to be a really kind of curious, curious thing. Living in the Midwest, I had often heard about folks serving, you know, pork and sauerkraut on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day and never really caught on to why that was. So it was really fascinating to find out. Tradition number two is eating extra long noodles, typically rice noodles. And the idea is that you try to eat them without breaking them and that the length of the noodle implies a long life, prosperity, In Japan, families eat buckwheat soba noodles specifically to bid farewell to the passing year and then to greet the new year. Fun fact number three, in Spain and then ultimately also in Mexico, the new year is greeted by eating 12 grapes as a clock strikes each hour starting at midnight. The idea is that eating each grape will bring you luck for the next 12 months. I actually do have more information about grape eating in Spain to tell you about a little later. Cool. Fun fact number four. In Greece, they smash pomegranates to scatter its seeds, and that echoes the abundance of life. So the idea is that you want to spread those pomegranate seeds far and wide. I don't know if those folks are as confused as I am about how to eat pomegranate seeds. Like, do you pop the whole thing in your mouth and spit out the seed, or do you chew the seed? These are things that I lie awake wondering about. Fun fact number five, and this is pretty true of a lot of cultures, eating a whole fish, especially for Lunar New Year in Asian cultures, symbolizes prosperity, abundance, and a good year. And in Europe and Scandinavia, that fish typically is cod or herring or carp. Now this, I don't think they eat the whole fish, but I know serving cod, herring, and carp is a big deal Mm -hmm. at the New Year in Scandinavia. And then also pickled herring in Poland and Scandinavia as well, and in Iceland, rotten shark. Hmm. That's my kind of gross fun fact, although that's not much fun fact about it. But yeah, rotten shark is a delicacy, and I'm not mocking it. Do they actually call it rotten shark, or does it have a different name? No, it has a real (laughs) real name to it. Yeah, no one's walking around like, here, have a bite of my rotten shark. I can't pronounce it, though. It's like... Oh, yeah. Hakarl? H-A, but with an accent, Mm -hmm. K-A-R-L. Okay. Also referred to as fermented shark. That sounds a little bit better than rotten shark. Yeah, even though ultimately, yes. Hakarl, or fermented shark in English, is a national dish of Iceland consisting of a Greenland shark or other sleeper shark, which has been cured with a particular fermentation process hung to dry for four to five months, has a strong ammonia-rich smell and fishy taste. 
My folks actually had the opportunity to to sample it. My stepmother is Icelandic in origin. Her father immigrated to the U.S. from Iceland. And so they did a heritage trip to Iceland and got to try everything. It was pretty interesting. Apparently very hard to get to your mouth because <laughs> there's a lot of, lot of odor to it. Did she like it? I wouldn't say she she liked it. She grew up in the United States in Boston and adored her father, who was a, a career fisherman, a professional fisherman. Mm-hmm. So he was often away from the house for long periods of time. And so time with dad was very precious. He did pass away in the uh, late 70s. And so for her, the heritage trip was really important. Mm. She was able to go to the village from whence he came, met a lot of extended family that she really had not known growing up. And so participating in in some of these heritage rituals and recipes and things, I know it was important for them to do that. Just to, to if, if somebody offered, they accepted mm-hmm. yeah. to kind of honor, yeah. honor her dad and honor her dad's origins. Yeah, that's cool. Fun fact number six, ring-shaped cakes make an appearance at the year's end. They're called vasilopita, or king pie, or basil pie, and that's a Greek New Year's cake with a quarter that's inserted after baking, and the person who finds the quarter gets luck for the whole year. This sounds a lot like the king cake that is very popular in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. In France, that's called a gâteau, or galette de roi. Mexico, rasca de reyes. In Bulgaria, Banitsa. In Denmark and Norway, Kranzakaga, or wreath cake. And that's a concentric ring tower of marzipan cake that's served with wine or aquavit. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. Have you had that? Yes. Can you tell me more about it? Oh, it's delicious. It's And it's so beautiful. It's almost too pretty to eat, but very mm. delicious. And I feel like actually that would be a fun thing to try to make at home, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is it is it simple enough that it's it can be a home recipe or is it uh, yeah, something I, you would get from a bakery for sure? I think it's easy enough that you can make it at home. It's time consuming, but I think it's easy enough. Fun fact number seven. I completely thought of our conversation about bog butter with this as well. I believe it is New Year's Day that is known as Day of the Buttered Bread or the Buttered Sandwich. And in Ireland, you place buttered bread outside your door. And this symbolizes an absence of hunger in the house, which I loved. I do too. Number eight, in the Netherlands, you eat olebollen or olo cakes, which are donut-like fried dumplings spiked with currants topped with powdered sugar. Mm. And you can go walking along a farmer's market and finding all these vendors selling olo cooks. Number nine, if you're counting along at home, we've got marzipanschwein or glückeschwein. Austrians and Germans drink a mulled wine punch and decorate the table with marzipan pigs which totally reminded me of our butter lamb. And now I want an entire (laughs) menagerie of butter lambs, marzipan pigs, and whatever other livestock that we can figure out. You could Um, do a butter cow. Yeah, I could do a carved butter cow. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm all about this right now. I I think that sounds amazing. (laughs) And then, of course, I can't miss a growing American tradition for New Year's Day, which is Hop and John. Hop and John is black-eyed peas cooked with greens and served sometimes with rice or with cornbread or with pork. And this spread throughout the U.S., specifically from the southern U.S. The thing that's kind of cool about Hop and John is that the the black-eyed peas represent pennies, the greens represent dollars, and then cornbread represents gold. So it's a way of eating your luck for the year. There are a lot of origin stories about why Black Eyed Peas and Hop and John was a big deal for New Year's Day. It's really hard to say definitively what that origin story is, but some of the stories that people tell is that it's a dish that basically originates from Africa when trade routes made legumes available throughout Europe and India. Of course, people brought it to the U.S. in the 1700s with the slave trade. There was a definite considerable bias against eating legumes for a long time because it was considered slave food but it ended up making a very large impression on American cuisine. There's a story that goes that the festive nature of black-eyed peas came specifically during emancipation on January 1st, 1863, but that is uh, a historical note that's been very challenged. 
I also found it interesting to see that Black Eyed Peas, some sources say that that's served on Rosh Hashanah or Jewish New Year. So there, there does seem to be some element of peas or legumes being part of New Year's foods. That's interesting. The fact that the peas and the legumes were harvested during the fall and then preserved and then brought forward, I wonder if that has something to do with the fact why they're so important during New Year's. Yeah, I do think there's something to be said for that. There's there's something about harvest foods that is so meaningful to us at the end of the year. It is a way of giving thanks for surviving the year mm-hmm. behind you. There's, there's this concept about eating your luck that I find really compelling. I had a hard time finding any kind of like scholarly information about this. So this is really just speculation, but we humans go through incredible lengths to get luck into our lives. We carry talismans, so you think of the lucky rabbit's foot, or there, there are things about finding your luck. If you find a four-leaf clover, you're lucky. If you find a lost penny, you're lucky. We have luck imbued in so many things, and horseshoes, and saint medallions we invite luck if we're at the casino we invite lady luck by having an attractive woman blow on the dice i mean you name it we've kind of as a human race we figured out how to get lucky make our luck find our luck or just petition for luck to happen but i do think it's really interesting we also eat food to evoke luck so it's this idea that if you eat these dishes in a certain way, I mean, I think of the Spanish grape tradition, right? To, to eat 12 grapes in 12 seconds as the clock strikes midnight and that you're going to have a lucky year. There, there's something about that that just really speaks to our deep-seated desire to control our lives <laughs> to the extent that we're willing to look for signs and symbols everywhere. You know, that we've got these mm-hmm. beans that represent coins and we've got greens that represent dollars or we eat pork because pigs root forward. I just find it all really interesting. It was not something that I had really thought of before until I started thinking about New Year's foods, but it's really about hoping that you have the luck to be prosperous Mm -hmm. and well-fed in the new year. Mm -hmm. I just find that really cool. It is very cool. And really what the whole celebration of New Year's is about going into a new year with a blank slate that has a foundation with prosperity and luck. So coming back to this idea of the bean and the harvest, I I do think that the bean, although it has humble origins, but has now a massive influence, as I've said, in our cuisine, I do do think there's a reason why the bean, because you can dry it, right? Right. It's It's like the ultimate versatile food. Like you can dry them, you can bring them back to life. It's like the ultimate resurrection food. Ooh. And and for a holiday that is tied into such a deep tradition of, and I'm not necessarily talking about Christianity, but such a deep tradition of death and rebirth, you know, one year dies and then the next one is born. We have this symbolism of mm-hmm. the old man representing the old year and the baby representing the new year. There probably is a lot of unspoken feeling about that. What are foods that we can resurrect the way that we can do with a with the humble bean. It's an interesting thought. Very interesting. Would you like me to tell you more about Hop and John then? Yeah. Okay, so Hop and John, as I've said before, is a dish that is modernly composed of black-eyed peas. Sometimes those peas are cooked with beans. Traditionally, it was cooked with rice and served like that. And then sometimes, you know, it incorporates pork or cornbread as well. And, and again, this is about the peas representing coins and the greens representing money and the pork representing progress and and luck and cornbread representing gold. It's a low country southern traditional dish that's pretty much being eaten broadly throughout the U.S. on New Year's Day. And the idea is that you eat it to welcome luck and prosperity into your new year. Evidence of this dish, of, of the recipe, dates back to 1846 and Hop and John gained some widespread culinary attention when it was served at the 1895 Atlanta Exposition. Its connotation with New Year's Day is really modern, or at least as modern as 1907 can be considered modern. Mm-hmm. When a grocer advertised in the Charleston News and Courier that the season's first shipment of cow peas was available with the note, it isn't New Year's yet, but this old Southern dish is always hailed with delight. So at least by 1907, this shift had been made that Hop and John was to be served on New Year's as, as a traditional thing. So what's curious is that although the dish has 
African origins that are actually pretty clear, both with beans being brought to the mm -hmm. New World, but also this dish, this element of cooking beans and rice together is also something of African origin. It pretty broadly was found at, t at both black and white tables in Charleston, South Carolina before the Civil War. Sarah Rutledge, who was the daughter of South Carolina Governor Edward Rutledge, included Hop and John recipes in her 1847 Carolina Housewife, which was a guide for genteel Southern ladies. Hmm. Basically, how to live, how to act, what to serve. So I find it really curious that this dish, even though it has these kind of humble origins, really made an impression all levels of society across the state. So the other modern twist on Hoppin' John is the idea that we eat this dish as black-eyed peas. And that's not always the case. Early dishes were actually made from pigeon peas or cow peas or field peas. And these are all beans that were commonly referenced as black-eyed peas. Mm. So the dish wasn't made with the legume that we today call black-eyed peas. These peas were grown as a rotation crop with Carolina gold rice, which was being moderately successfully grown in South Carolina until a 1911 hurricane basically destroyed that year's rice growing endeavors. So the idea was that you cook these field peas with Carolina gold oh. rice, and that was the dish. I get the impression that Carolina gold rice was a little bit particular, maybe a little bit tricky to grow. It was a little bit of a delicate grain. Rice production moved to Texas, and they basically stopped trying to grow rice in the South. It was just too swampy. It just mm. wasn't. It just wasn't working. But no rice, no bean rotation. This bean that was being grown to kind of help replenish the land after growing rice. If you're not growing rice, you're not growing the beans, and so both components kind of fell out of favor. And then as Americans gained mobility, especially after World War II, and they came back and they were given money to build homes wherever they wanted, mm -hmm. people still made the dish, but they made it with whatever they could find. And so that was heavier beans that could really get shipped around the country, heavier rices. And so what seems to have been a very delicate dish over time became different. Bas mm -hmm. Basically, people were cooking what they could find. And so what we think of as Hop and John today is really not what was being served back in the 1800s. There is good news, though. <laughs> There's a lot of interest in rediscovering heirloom plants. And this is something that's, I think, really super modern, as in within the last 20, 30 years. Because of that interest in heirloom plants and therefore interest in heirloom recipes, we're starting to see a comeback mm -hmm. in a lot of fruits, vegetables, agricultural products that we really haven't seen for a long time. In 1986, Richard Schultz, who is a Savannah ophthalmologist, planted a crop of Carolina gold rice at his Turnbridge plantation using seeds propagated from a few grains of Carolina gold that had been held in a USDA seed bank since 1927. Wow. Yeah. And then on the back of that success with that crop, there's a foundation called the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation. And that group produces a supply that is sufficient to supply Southern chefs and restaurants with this heirloom type of rice. And because of that, there's now other efforts to bring back other things like pigeon peas, heirloom peas and beans. So it's entirely possible that now or soon we'll be able to kind of experience this Hop and John dish. Uh, the way that it was originally made. But in the meantime, you can get your New Year's Day luck on by eating black-eyed peas. Just know that they're not the same. But it, it's just, again, it comes back to that, even on a broader scale, this idea of this resurrection that these, you know, we were eating this dish. Our, our great, great, great-grandparents were eating pigeon peas and Carolina gold rice as their Hop and John. And that stopped for various reasons. I mean, this happens in the culinary world quite a bit, right? Yeah. But it never really went away. So even though they stopped growing Carolina gold to the extent that they were, and then they stopped growing field peas to the extent that they, they did, you know, in favor of hardier things that were easier to ship, it still came back. Yeah. It still is able to be resurrected. And it's thanks to things like seed banks and folks that are interested in reviving heirloom plants and techniques and, and recipes that we get these things are never really truly lost right. to us. I think what I really love about 
This dish, Hoppin' John, is getting a renaissance as far as its heirloom ingredients becoming more available again. But I do love the fact that for all these years, that dish has survived. Mm. It, it's just been modified. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's been adapted. And that's what humans are and that's what humans do. Right. And that whether you're black or you're white or you are descended from African slaves or you're descended from European slaveholders, specifically in context of this dish and the, and the South, uh, you know, and the time it kind of saw its rise in, in low country cooking, that there was a sort of universality about it, but that people continued to embrace it and that it was important to them. It remained important all these years. Right. I've heard that it's actually not that great. Like I've heard, oh, it's mushy peas. Why are we eating this again? Or we're eating because we're supposed to be eating it for for luck. So even though something that was maybe not really loved, it it endured. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to our people, all of us, Mm. you know, we endure. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's a nice thought. Yeah. Especially after the crazy year I think all of us have been experiencing. Indeed. So the other tradition that I remember reading about is the tradition of first footing. And this is something that I thought was really cool. And it's kind of related to custom of paying a New Year's call on the first day of the year. The idea was that you would call upon your neighbor throughout the day as a brief social call. And it was meant to help renew or repair friendships. Do you know anything about the origin of first footing? Well, I do. It actually has its origins in a Scottish holiday called Hogmanay. And the Scots take this holiday very seriously. It's actually a three-day holiday, and they have a bank holiday, which the rest of Europe does not observe. Mm -hmm. And it involves a whole ton of merriment. And to understand why this holiday is so important to the Scots, you have to know that Christmas was actually banned in Scotland for 400 years. 400 years? 400 years. I had no idea. Yep. So during the Reformation in the 16th century, Christmas was viewed by the Protestants as a Catholic festival. And (laughs) they, the Protestants, said that there was no biblical justification for the holiday. And there still, to this day, is debate in some churches about the validity of the Christmas celebration. So you substitute it with Hogmanay, which was celebrated during this time, and then it becomes the big national holiday. The origins of the word Hogmanay, like so many words, has so many stories. There are a couple that sounded promising to me. The first one, that it was a corruption of a Greek phrase for holy month, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce. (laughs) Right? Right. And then there was another one that it was from a French word, and I couldn't find anywhere how to pronounce this word. It's spelled H-O-G-I-N-A-N-E, and it means a gala day. Hmm, There's also another story that it could have come from an Anglo-Saxon word, Holleg Manoth, which means holy month. And then there's another one that it could possibly have had a Scandinavian influence, Hoganat, which means Yule. And I personally like the Scandinavian origin story because I'm Scandinavian. And because it makes the tradition of first footing make a little bit more sense. So first footing, as you mentioned, was visiting is visiting homes and it's got to be somebody other than the people that live in that home. And it is the first person who steps across the threshold and it starts actually at the strike of midnight. So first footers will generally arrive at your home after the stroke of midnight. And the first footer is most lucky, speaking of luck, If it's a tall, dark-haired man. And this is likely because if there was a tall, blonde, or light-haired man knocking on your door, it probably was a Viking and things were going to become very unlucky for you. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, that is, I've never heard the thing about that, yeah. you know, that the, the blonde man would be a Viking. Yes. That's, that's a really, and that's a very valid twist right? on that for sure. Especially <laughs> in Scotland. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the first footer would generally bring gifts when they came into your home. Again, that prosperity and that luck. And those gifts traditionally were salt, coal, shortbread, whiskey, and black bun. Salt was and still is a very, very important component in civilization. And we have to do a separate podcast episode on salt because it is absolutely fascinating. Um, I mean, even the, the phrase, you're worth your weight in salt... Mm-hmm. comes from the fact of how important salt is. It was used to preserve foods. It was used as a currency in some cases. Mm-hmm. So salt was very important. Coal, obviously, to warm the home. Shortbread, which is a very Scottish dish. Mm-hmm. Whiskey, you know. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Water of life. Water of life. <laughs> And black bun. And black bun is really an interesting dish. It isn't actually a bun. It's more of a loaf that's baked in a pastry. And it's very rich. It's currants and raisins and whiskey. And it's very, very dense. So not blood not blood related no like not black pudding. no not blood oh, related good. at all yeah, i'm no. so relieved the the queen of gross facts is so relieved yeah. that this is not a blood related <laughs> it is definitely thing. not okay, blood good. related kind of like a plum pudding a bit oh, okay. but it's encased okay. in a pastry oh yummy yeah shortbread again very scottish yes what very i love battery. about shortbread is that it's three ingredients and the recipe is one part sugar, two parts butter, and three parts flour. So it was a very, very easy recipe to recreate and remember. Yeah. And it does have a huge custom of being eaten on New Year's. Its origins are probably related to pagan Yule cakes, which symbolize the sun. And again, we're dealing with the winter time, especially in the Northern Hemisphere. So mm-hmm. that symbolization of the sun returning to us. Again, it's kind of like that resurrection. We're coming out of the dark and we're going into the light. Mm-hmm. It goes back to our butter episode, which butter plays such a huge part in this. And it was a luxury item. It wasn't something that was eaten throughout the year. It was really made and consumed during the holidays, Christmas and and New Year's. You had said earlier that your family made a lot of Scandinavian dishes, especially during the holidays. What Can you tell me more about that? What was that like? Yeah. So there were a couple of dishes that we have always had. And one of them was lefsa. And it's a, it's kind of like a potato tortilla. It's potato and cream and flour, and it's rolled out very, very thin. It's grilled on both sides. And when you eat it, it's so good. It's so delicious. You put <laughs> butter and sugar, and some people put cinnamon on it, and then you roll it up and and you eat it. I actually shipped some lefsa to my dad for Christmas this year. Oh, Yeah. And he was very excited. He texted me back and he said he got the lefsa. Now it can be Christmas. All he needs now is his pickled herring, which you <laughs> mentioned earlier. <laughs> but yeah, so there's some debate about whether it should be served warm or cold. I prefer cold because I like my butter not to melt into it because I like the Mm. butter to create this nice layer and then the sugar crystals on top. And Mm -hmm. when you roll it up, you get that crunchy, creamy. But my mom prefers hers warm. So the butter melts into the lefse Mm -hmm. and then she puts she puts cinnamon and sugar on it. I don't care for the cinnamon part, but yeah. When my grandma was alive, she would make lutefisk. And oh wow. Yes. So and my mother would not allow lutefisk into the house. It's <laughs> she did it, it it's much like fermented shark. It's got a very distinct odor. I don't I, the processes are very different, but it's preserved with lye. So it has a very odd, but 
it's served with butter. And I think that's the Uh, saving grace is the dipping it in the melted butter. I have not myself had neither lefse nor lutefisk, although I know that it's extraordinarily popular, um, not even even just in Scandinavia, but, you know, in the U.S. too. uh, Folks, obviously folks bring their traditions here. And I love that. I love that about the United States. Yeah, those were mostly Christmas um, traditions, yeah. but the lefse did carry over again because we would have very similar dish in the morning on New Year's Day for my brother's to celebrate my brother's birthday. So we had lefse. We'd save enough mm. of the lefse for Christmas to have lefse on New Year's Day. And then my girlfriend's grandma, Grandma Pete, um, would make a fruit soup. And it's my brother's absolute favorite. So we have that both for Christmas Eve or Christmas Day breakfast and New Year's Day breakfast. And it's um, tapioca and orange juice and um, mandarin oranges and strawberries. So it it is, you know, again, it evokes this this sunny summery this, you know, we're we're coming out of the dark. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how yeah, about you? Bright, what bright what flavors? What kind of things did you guys do on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day? You know, one thing, one tradition, and it's fairly new, you know, and, and getting ready to talk about New Year's traditions actually reminded me of, of one. Um, so when I lived in Ohio and I lived near my dad, it you know, the curry thing, huge, mm. huge deal. Um, but we, we did go to a friend's home. I remember going to a friend's home on New Year's Eve and she served a dish called, she called it going home soup. Um, and it is, I thought I, and it's funny how your memory fails and not, you know, works and not doesn't work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because I had a memory of it being a Polish dish that a, a friend who of Polish origin would serve. I was completely wrong. It is, um, I'm looking she, she did. She, I believe it's a Czech dish and it was served to us by a friend with a French oh. or a French origin. <laughs> so it was very, very different. Um, but yeah, it, it's called going home. I'm trying to remember, see where she, was sauerkraut, carrot, water, pork, rice, and sour cream. Mm. And the idea was that you would, you know, be partying and you would, you know, be sent home. It, it was a way to clearly mark the end of the evening, but it was this nutritious, um, delicious dish that kind of like, you, you, you could imagine, you could imagine going home in a sleigh, you know, sipping the soup. Um, as much as you can imagine motoring home in your, your very modern automobile, um, <laughs> with, with the, with the same, it just, it's one of those dishes that seem to defy time. Mm. Um, and that was, was really cool. So it was fun. It was fun rediscovering that recipe actually, cause I, I had only had it a few times, but it made a lasting impression. Um, but I did do a little bit of a survey was there more that was there more that you wanted to talk about with Hagmute? No, because I can, can I, believe me, I can continue to go on. This the, the rabbit hole was very deep <laughs> on this one. So I and I don't know how much of this we want to use, but I'm I'm gonna I'll do the little survey of like the hundred years worth of. I how do I want to do this? So, you know, but having immigrant parents, you know, made me really curious about American traditions and where they come from. Um, you know, I, I do consider myself a full-blooded American. I, I don't, my nationality is 100% American. Um, although I do have these traditions imbued in my life from other places mm-hmm. due to my family. But I got really curious about 
how New Year's Day and New Year's Eve was celebrated in the United States. And so I did a little bit of a survey of some, um, I did a little bit of a survey of some historical culinary sources just to sort of see what menus were, were being offered. Um, because we have this tradition. So, you know, the 17th century Dutch immigrants, um, in the Hudson river Valley in New York area, they brought, they brought this sort of first footing, even though it's this very Scottish thing from Hogmanay, it also, the elements of that were imbued in our, our newborn country. So the idea of using New Year's Day to kind of set out and you open your house to family and friends. And English colonists also adapt, adapted these customs into what they called collations. And those were the brief social calls made by men uh, meant to renew and repair friendships, which I think is such a beautiful idea, you know, that you take that moment to, and the, and this is also in the Jewish faith as well, you know, that you take, you set aside time, you set aside a real purposeful moment to release, to apologize for the hurts you've caused, mm. but also to release um, ill feelings. Right. You know, that that it is that moment to kind of check in with your fellow people and sort of say, you know, I, I'm still here with you and like, Let's let's move forward into this new new year together. Yeah. I think that's just a beautiful thought. But for those collations, visitors were offered um, things like cherry bounce, which is mm. sadly not so common anymore. Yeah. But I remember reading about it in Anne of Green Gables, and I've been obsessed about it ever since. <laughs> um, wine, hot punch, Ola Cokes that I mentioned before, the donuts, and the, those were steeped in rum, which also mm. sounds amazing. Cakes, cookies with caraway. Again, we're back to the caraway seeds. Coriander, cardamom, honey. But basically, the idea is that you just served what you could afford to serve. Right. And that was, I think, a really important element to it, too. And so for the United States, the custom of paying New Year's calls originated in New York, as I said, and just spread throughout our young country. And remember, it wasn't coast to coast at that moment, right. either. But it was so important that on the first New Year's after his inauguration, George Washington opened his house to the public, and he continued to receive visitors on New Year's Day throughout the seven years that he lived in Philadelphia. That's amazing. So, right? Yeah. Just, it, it just sort of became ingrained in our, in our lives. Right. So just I'm going to touch on a couple of, a, a couple of texts. I'm going to touch on a couple of texts that talk about New Year's Day traditions menus obviously i'm focused on the food i think that's the fun part i mean why why go to somebody's house if they're not going to feed you exactly but from the 1880 buckeye cookery and practical housekeeping comes this snippet when receiving calls on new year's day the table should be handsomely arranged and decorated and provided with rather substantial dishes such as would suit the taste of gentlemen mm. too great profusion especially of cakes confectionally and too, sorry, this part of this I find really funny. Too great profusion, especially of cakes, confectionery, and ices, is out of taste. Selections just right out. Oh, so dear. Like, yeah, right? Don't you dare oh. serve ices to a gentleman. No. But then, but then listen to this list, right? Selections may be made from the following. Escalloped oysters, cold tongue, turkey, chicken, and ham pressed meats, boned turkey, jellied chicken, salads, coleslaw garnished with fried oysters, bottled pickles, French or Spanish pickles, jellies, charlotte russe, ice creams, ices, two large handsome cakes for decoration of table, and one or two baskets of mixed cake, fruit, layer, and sponge cake predominating, fruits, nuts, coffee, chocolate with whipped cream, lemonade. Holy... <laughs> Whose staff made this? Right, exactly, exactly. And this this came out of the the Buckeye Publishing Company in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So we're not even talking like highfalutin. Yeah, we're not talking highfalutin East Coast stuff. Although I know folks listening in the Midwest, I I had the pleasure of talking to a woman from Ohio the other day, and you know I mentioned. Midwest traditions and and she she corrected me like Ohioans do that Ohio is not 
the Midwest. Ohio <laughs> is the west of the East Coast. Okay. Um, which I'd heard before, which is just really, I just find it really funny because for West Coast folks, you know, it's like California is the West, New York is the East, and everything else is practically <laughs> is the Midwest. Right. You know, the years I lived in Ohio, no one at home in California could remember where I lived. They, they, it was so funny. It was like, so how are you doing in, I'm sorry, where is it you live again? <laughs> Iowa? Indiana? It, it does start with not, a vowel and end they, with a vowel. It's, it's you know, a vowel. It's I would say a, that. It was like, eh, it's one of those vowel states. Yeah. <laughs> like, no big deal. It was, it was funny. It was like, and, and it was often the same people consistently just, and I know they care about me, but they just would not, could not remember Ohio. It just was just so funny. So in 1890, uh, new, re- new menus for January recommended for dinner, mock turtle soup, panned guinea fowls, broiled bacon, potato puff, stewed tomatoes, corn, mayonnaise of celery, wafers, cheese, and Marlboro pudding coffee. I think that there might be missing a comma there. Yeah. I think it might be Marlboro pudding comma coffee. Yeah. And I'm not sure whether that mayonnaise of celery is meant to be celery wafers and cheese or just celery. And I have no idea what mayonnaise of celery is. Do you? I is have that... never heard of mayonnaise of celery and I'm not a fan of mayonnaise anyway. Yeah. All right. So then we won't worry about yeah. it. In, in 1911, catering for special occasions with menus and recipes by one Fanny Merritt Farmer. Fanny, Fanny Farmer. Farmer. She had she recommended four different recipes for a New Year's afternoon tea, which to me sounds like a totally legit human thing we could do um, moving forward. Well, maybe not this year, but soon, I hope, we can return to the normalities and actually... Not that afternoon tea is normal, but I'm advocating for it. So menu one, um, Attleboro sandwiches, jam jumbles, walnut meringue squares, salted almonds, five o'clock tea. Um, menu two, Devonshire sandwiches, buttered eduators, which I maybe a typo. Do you know what an eduator, <laughs> eduator is? No. I don't. Okay. We'll have to look that up. Yeah. Scotch five o'clock tea, which I imagine is... Had a little whiskey yeah. in your teacup. Sultana sticks, hickory nougat, Russian tea, hot chocolate, and whipped cream. Um, menu three was noisette sandwiches, peanut crisps, Rochester sandwiches, Florida orange sticks, Turkish delight, iced tea, five o'clock cocoa, which I imagine has a little nip of something mm-hmm. in it. And then menu number four, which this one actually sounds the most appealing to me. Lobster patties, Huntington chicken, tea rolls, orange honey sticks, pineapple mousses, macaroons, silver sponge cakes, and oriental punch. That sounds pretty delicious. Right? Doesn't Mm -hmm. that sound really good? So, you know, what was kind of curious, too, is we had the prohibition in the United States. And so you would think that that um, would uh, impact uh, a day. Well, not so much New Year's Day, because I think I, I think mimosas are probably pretty popular because they help kind of take the sting out of New Year's <laughs> Eve. But uh, obviously, prohibition had an impact on everything. Uh, and this is from the 1912 New York Times uh, report on how New Year crowds were going to fill hotels Less menu, but more just mo- interesting moment in history. After two years of dry law enforcement, the people of this country have at last got the stride of this new dry law tune and have not found it as bad as it might be. <laughs> just as last year and the year before, liquor will be taboo. None will be sold in any of the big hotels. It is now an accepted fact that the eagled eye dry agent is to be reckoned with, and it remains to be seen how many will brave this vigilance and carry their own along. Oh, it's generally so known many. that so, so many. many. I'm not so sure that folks got in the stride of that, but okay. Um, it is generally known that the hotel employees cannot interfere with the patron's private supply, which he has with him. But the ruling as to the restrictions of the dry agents are not so well defined, and only the most courageous are willing to stand the consequences. That was the interesting part of prohibition 
is that it did not include any liquor that you owned. It was only, mm-hmm. um, it only affected the manufacturing of alcohol from January 17th on. Mm-hmm. So to that point, if you brought your own in, it was legal. You just yeah. couldn't buy it yeah. after. Yeah. Huh. And, and so, and, and the other, so the end point of that, so remember what I'm reading to you is from 1921. Mm-hmm. Um, so prohibition in the U.S. was repealed in 1933 mm-hmm. by our 22nd Amendment. Um, but that wasn't, it, it still wasn't completely off the books by all states until 1966. Yeah. So there, it, it stuck around for a long, long, long time. The other thing I thought was was really interesting was this 1941 Washington Post article about buffet dinner, favorite way to greet the new year. But what was what's cool about this at this point, we're still seeing that theme of folks coming over and you're serving a buffet supper. Um, so that hasn't changed. And but we're starting to see a shift on the what foods are being served. And obviously, our country at that point had gone through quite uh, had completed one world war and was actually in the middle of the second. Mm-hmm. By 1941, were we, were we at war? I don't remember. December 7th, 1942? 1942. Yeah. So we were on the verge of it. Yeah. Yeah. We were on the verge. So 1941 Washington post says brand new model of new year's we are experiencing this year. We may approach it with apprehension, for we don't know what is around the curve for us, but that doesn't mean we should not gather our friends about us New Year's Eve and sing Auld Lang Syne and look forward to happier days. I actually feel like this sentiment is very true for 2020 Mm -hmm. as well. The kind of celebrating we do this New Year's will not mean formality and a lot of fancy food, but more old-time suppers, with guests helping themselves to something steaming, fragrant, and delicious. You can't beat the buffet supper for ease of preparation and service, and an assortment of food that will please all guests. These will be fruit punches, spiced cider, eggnog, and other drinks at New Year's Day open houses. So why not try a new beginning and have a tray holding glasses of hot vegetable punch? Yes. Why not? (laughs) Why not? (laughs) And then from this point, we get progressively more modern. Are we we still good here? We're still good. I just want to talk about Auld Lang Syne. Because you, you okay. mentioned that. That also is a uh, very Scottish um, song. It was a poem yes, it is. that was penned by Robert Louis Stevenson, I think. I, I'll, I'll, I'll check. Okay. I, think I, I know it's a Robert. Um, I know it was a Robert who wrote it. Robert Burns. Robert, really? Scottish, a Scott slang poem written by Robert Burns in 1788. Robert Burns. And set to a traditional folk song. Yes. Um, Did Robert Burns do the folk song? Because this, the tune. Oh, yeah. The tune was. So, so Robert Burns wrote the words and it sounds like. I mean, it says that it was a traditional tune. Yes. And that doesn't necessarily have a, I'm not seeing, but you know how it is where it's like, right. Good luck. Okay. Um, whatever. Okay. Whatever. So anyway, Auld Lang Syne is, um, was written by a Scottish poet and it means literally translates to old long since and basically it means that d- days gone by so it's talking about um let's drink to the days gone by um I'm trying to remember the song but anyway i i, I just thought that that tie into the scottish yeah 
Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Yes. Should old acquaintance be forgot and auld lang syne? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of this is uh, the part that I've always loved about the song was was this stanza or whatever <laughs> it's called. <laughs> uh, surely, surely you'll be your pint stoop and surely I'll be mine. And I truly don't know what that means, but I like this part and we'll take a cup of kindness yet for all things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. I mean, it's written in 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 Scottish um terms yes and so there's a lot of it that is a little bit um hard to yes we twa hay peddling in the burn fray morning sun did shine did dine but seas between us braid har roared sin auld lang syne i mean you can kind of guess at it but yeah yeah this says the the, so sure. the original five verse version of the poem essentially gets people singing, "Let's drink to days gone by, an appropriate toast for the new year." That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shall we? Nineteen sixty-six. Do you want to hear a little bit more? Yes. Okay. The Los Angeles Times in nineteen sixty-six wrote no amount of snacking and quaffing at a new year's eve party will satisfy guest appetite for a real meal so now this is interesting because we're now talking about new year's eve and not necessarily new year's day right. uh, hostesses should be ready with substantial food to welcome the brand new calendar a buffet supper fits the free spirit of the occasion so again we're still doing buffets mm-hmm. food may be the old standbys ham and turkey but most will appreciate new and different flavors so their recommendation for a midnight buffet in 1966, California consomme, beef, sweetbreads, and wine sauce, rice and chicken, Brussels sprouts and celery, greens tossed with pomegranate seeds, oil vinegar dressing, roquefort dressing, croissants, butter, hot fruit compote, Christmas cookies, French chocolate, hot coffee, and liqueurs. Mmm. Yeah. So I, I actually think this menu, this menu I thought was really kind of interesting because you definitely see the seeds of west coast cuisine in here right you know the idea of brussels sprouts california consomme obviously which i'm i don't know what i don't know what that means for them but i could the fact that they're calling it out specifically is california but greens tossed with pomegranate seeds i think is a very Mm -hmm. feels like a very west coast which one was this which is the los angeles times oh oh, okay so yeah okay yeah I just, I just feel like there's definitely that emerging yes, California cuisine yeah. aesthetic coming. Yeah. Uh, by contrast, Washington Post, 1969, and I believe we're going to be talking about uh, Super Bowl foods coming up mm-hmm. in, very mm-hmm. soon. So bowls came into their own at this time of year. Rose Bowl, Cotton Bowl, and other football bowl games offer reason enough for a bowl brunch to begin the new year lightly. For New Year's Day brunch, smart hostesses call the signals for a more fun-than-fuss kind of party that is custom-made for the new and relaxed lifestyle of the 70s. Mm. Feeling very groovy right now. Feeling groovy. Right? <laughs> Kickoff for the brunch is a sideliner, a hot and tasty combination of tomato juice and vodka. Mm. A.K.A. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. <laughs> I've never heard it called a sideliner before, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, and that is to nibble alongside whirly gigs, meat-filled biscuit pinwheels. Oh, yes. This is yep. This is getting we're we're getting a real familiar territory yes. now. Omelets extra rich because they're whisked with cream and topped with a spoonful of caviar, black or red, are sure to win a touchdown with armchair fans. The dessert is Bavarian chocolate Bavarian cream in the shape of a trophy football you know bring your own shag carpet <laughs> i just it's so gosh it's so it's just so of the moment it was so au courant that menu like and yet there's a lot of it that endures this you know the tomato juice and vodka mm-hmm. obviously the whirly gigs i think any yeah. kid you know can any adult at this point probably remembers that um i've got two more one is from a 
back to the Los Angeles Times in 1979. And this I thought was, again, really interesting. And just, okay, I'll, I'll editorialize after. What we have for New Year's Eve dinner, so again, we're back to dinner, is sure to be a dilemma. Although January 1st does not begin the new year for all people in the world. So there's an acknowledgement that it's just, this is not the only New Year's. Right. A dinner reflecting the food choices of different of a different nationality can be interesting and fun to prepare. Chinese or Japanese cuisine offers many creative and quick to prepare dishes. With the aid of a wok, bean sprouts, mung shoots, pea pods, and other Chinese vegetables, combined with steak, chicken, or pork, and seasoned with Tabasco or soy sauce can be stir-fried in minutes. For those who prefer a meal that sits a little longer in the stomach, Italy offers dishes that are both delicious and filling. Lasagna, Italian bread, and a salad are sure to please everyone. Add a piece of cheesecake or a cannoli as a dessert, and the menu is complete. From south of the border come many ideas that are reminders of the sunny, hot climate of Mexico. Tacos, cornbread, enchiladas, and guacamole can add the spice of life to a dinner. Hmm. So all of a sudden, we're, we're by 1979. So remember, we started in 1880. Right. So now we're in 1979, virtually 100 years later. And, you know, we've... We're still, we still love this idea of the buffet dinner. We still want people around us, but we, the foods that we're offering are just so completely different now and really uh, kind of speaks to the globalization right. that was happening around the world. We've, we've come a long way and uh, come a really long way in a hundred years. We really and that have. was, you know, back in 1980. And so yeah. even more so in the ensuing 30 years, 40 years. I don't do math. Years, many years, many, many more years, <laughs> many decades, <Yes>. several. <laughs> I did like this one last thought, and from 1986, New York Times, and I think this is still true, and this is what I'm talking about, really. New Year's Eve dinners are a microcosm of the evolution in America dining, though from time to time, my co-host puts her foot down at what she considers my avant-garde ideas. When I suggested that this year we serve diner food, meatloaf and mashed potatoes, she suggested I had taken leave of my senses. It was hardly a suggestion I would have made even in jest in the early 1970s, a time when a formal meal was incomplete without beef and six courses. So yeah, yeah. it really does kind of... I, I just love that, the, the microcosm of the evolution in American dining, because it is, yeah. you know? I mean, we went from serving salads with... Uh, fried oysters to mayonnaise with celery to tacos yeah <laughs> um, and meatloaf which I think and meatloaf mm -hmm. I think many of us would consider you know tacos a triumph at any time um but yeah it was just really it's been uh it's been an interesting it's been an interesting decade year century <laughs> I mean I, I mean I'm saying that with actually without intending to be justful but you know, look look how far we've come. Yeah. So I've uh so I've already spilled the beans on what I'm planning on doing for my New Year's Day feast of uh going pork vindaloo and I found a black eyed peas and mushrooms recipe made with Indian spices. Mm. So I thought I'd, I would take that on. It's my version of Hop and John and some basmati rice. I haven't found my greens dish yet, but I'm excited about it. That sounds delicious. I think I'm going to stick traditional. I think I'll stick with lefse and Grandma Pete's fruit soup. And, um, sounds amazing. Yeah, and a mimosa or two. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, the evolution of the mimosa. Now, that's also something worth, worth talking about right? sometime. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, I think I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go have a grapefruit juice mimosa. That sounds really good, right? That now. does sound delicious. I know I have a little bit more prosecco over there. But before we go, what can oh, our yes. listeners expect for our next episode? Oh, our next episode is gonna be wonderful because we are going back into the kitchen with Marcy Thompson, and she is going to share with us her family's traditional baklava recipe. Now, what's she's going to share with us her family's traditional baklava recipe period i don't know what i don't know whether you want to incorporate this or not 
So I'm trying to keep it as an aside. What I find really, what I found really fun, what I found really fun about talking to Marcy was that her family composition is a little unusual. She is an African American adoptee into a Greek American family, um, but she has been given full access to her family history and culture. And her father taught her how to make baklava the way that his mother taught him. And so they have this chain, uh, this recipe chain that has, has gone on for quite some time that's really beautiful. And Marcy has a lot of wonderful stories to share about that experience. 